Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, Sarah and I talk about some tips and tricks for effective legal speech and writing. So right off the bat, Sarah, do you have to be an extrovert to be an effective legal um, writer and speaker? I would say no, it's not a requirement. It can help at least in terms of maybe your confidence levels at the beginning, but it's definitely not required. From discussions with lawyers, what I've discovered is that mooting and litigation, they're very similar to theater. So improv would be very helpful because although you have a lot of research and preparation, you do need to learn to think on your feet to answer the questions from the judges or from your peers, depending on the situation that you're in. Are you actually in a court or are you doing like a practice move? And you need to learn to predict the thoughts of your listeners. So jury, judges, peers to also adapt what you're saying. But that's something that can be learned. You don't need to be someone who's done improv in the past or who's done theater in the past. And and a lot of people who are currently in litigation that are practicing don't have a background in that at all. But I think it's something maybe to consider for people who are potentially a bit more shy or at least worried about public speaking and about their performance. I think it's something that can help uh, because ultimately what you're doing is you're putting on a persona to some extent. Um, So I think that that can be helpful, but that doesn't mean that if you're an introvert, you can't go in to litigation. Um, I think it's just a matter of really preparing yourself accordingly. I also agree. Like, I I like what you said about the word persona, because I think that you just have to see it like any other professional role, right? Where what you're doing when you're thinking about legal writing and speaking is that you are the expert, you are giving your professional opinion, your professional evaluation, and your professional advice. You have to think about it, for instance, I think one of the best examples is like, you know, grade school teachers aren't like that every single minute of their life, right? And and in fact, you know, if you happen to know people who are training to be teachers or who are teachers and see them in their work and in their practice, they can be quite different to how they are personally, right? And that's because when you're taking on these kinds of roles, you are trying to command a room, right? Or or in this case, you're trying to command some kind of argument. However, I think that um, that doesn't mean that every single moment of your life, you have to be like that. So I think that thinking about extrovert or introvert in terms of your profession may not be the best way to approach it. I, I like what you said, Sarah, about thinking about it from an experience point of view, right? Where the more experienced you are at dealing with thinking on your feet or trying to be um, trying to be argumentative or commanding a kind of rhetoric, the more successful you'll be when it comes to this specific form of speaking and writing. Um, okay, I, I, I just wanted to ask that question off the bat because I think that that is one of the immediate hurdles that a lot of prospective and current law students are concerned with when it comes to 
speaking and writing uh, from this kind of expertise, from this kind of um, specialized perspective, right, is that you have to be super enthusiastic. You have to be super uh, ready to go. And I, and I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but now in terms of general tips, what would you say, Sarah? I think what's really important to do, and this would apply, I think, both to legal speech and legal writing, is really to stay away from legalese. So any complex terminology, Latin words, different things like that, I feel like as a first year, it's easy to want to use it because you feel like you sound more academic that way or more knowledgeable, but it shows a lot more of your understanding if you're able to explain complex legal concepts in layman's terms or just, you know, regular kind of conversational English, of course, still formal because you are in a professional setting, but just without any of those specific kind of doctrines and different things like that. Um, also, I mean, you also have to adapt your your speech or your writing to who you're actually your audience is. So let's say when you're in court and you're talking to a jury, they don't know any of these Latin words. It's not going to mean anything to them. And even if you explain it, if anything, it's going to be more confusing than if you just straight off the bat, straight off the bat, sorry, went with kind of basic common terms. Um, another thing I would say is really Occam's razor and uh, keep it simple, stupid <laughs> principle. I think are really, really important when it comes to law. The shorter and the more straight to the point, the better. Um, one thing that I discovered that I actually had a hard time adapting to at the beginning is that you don't have to be worried about repetitions or other stylistic considerations. It really doesn't matter. Um, the easier, the better. So if there's one specific word that just makes everything a lot simpler and you just so happen to have to use it a lot, it's not going to negatively impact your grade, for example, if you're writing a memo. If anything, it seems to be really appreciated um, in the field. So that's something that I found odd being used to more, I guess, academic writing in, in my undergrad. But for law, it's really point first and anything that you can do to make your point as salient as possible and if that requires repetition then that's fine i struggle with that a lot i think it's one of the reasons why i didn't do too well for the for the legal research and writing class actually is because i was so concerned with taking things from an academic perspective which you know i was worried about coming into this program that truly you do not have to worry too much about whether or not your writing sounds good. I think it's what Sarah said, like you have to make your argument salient. And there is, I think, a difference, especially when your audience may not be uh, your peer, right? Uh, or your audience may not be an expert in the field. Or even your audience may have to be juggling your uh, writing with like 20 or 30 other memos or documents, right? Uh, all of a sudden, your writing becomes kind of a means to an end or like a tool or a conduit to convey some kind of message rather than maybe, let's say, a craft or an art form. And that's not to say that, I, I think you put it this way, I think you don't have to worry too much about the artistry, however, really shoddy writing is still evident, right? So, so editing is always important because if there are 
grammatical errors or typos or omissions or um, even sometimes phrasing that is too simple or too colloquial, it will stick out like a sore thumb. But it's like what Sarah said. If you have to repeat a term again and again because that's the only term that fits, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Something else I'll say too is that one way that has helped me with um, fact patterns and addressing hypothetical scenarios is to begin at least the drafts with you have asked me to dot, dot, dot. And, and I, the reason why I think this is helpful is because conceptualizing who your client is very specifically and what they want and what they need from you will help you to make your writing as point forward as possible. If you know that your client is a leader in the community or perhaps um, someone who has never really navigated legal, um, the legal profession, that will significantly change the tone of your piece compared to your writing to like a senior partner, some, someone else in your firm or something, right? Um, something else I'll say too is to not only focus on the point, but to also make that point stand out by focusing on differences. So whenever you're analogizing, whenever you're bringing up evidence, always think to yourself not only how can this be how can this be refuted, but why perhaps is the analogy I'm bringing up not actually the same, right? In what ways is it different? It might be the case that you can't come up with an answer, but I think when you're writing or, or, or even speaking, right? By, by focusing on the ways that the evidence you bring up can be different from your case, the quicker you can anticipate counter arguments, which I believe is really essential to being able to speak and write well. Definitely. And a lot of the time, something that surprised me is that in law school, when you're writing, it's not necessarily with the intent of it being persuasive, it's more you're trying to present any and all arguments that might be raised. And then after, yes, you draw a conclusion, like you think it's likely that a court is going to rule in a certain direction. But even if you agree with one side more than the other, you shouldn't show it as much as possible. You really want to raise the strongest arguments on both sides. And I think that, at least for me, that took a bit of getting used to. Because depending on the cases or depending on the fact pattern, sometimes just it's going to raise even simply moral issues and you're going to want to lead towards a plaintiff or a defendant naturally. But that's not something that you can do. You really have to consider yourself kind of a neutral, objective <laughs> um, party and just give your professor or whomever that you're writing this for um, every single possibility because ultimately it's not your problem right it's your client's problem so what you want to do is say actually you're the one who has to make the decision i'm just going to be the one who tells you in my expert opinion what are the consequences if you choose to x um act in x way or y way or z way right exactly and um you know let's be honest a lot of rulings and, and judgments in in law are, sometimes are unpredictable um sometimes you don't really understand the reasoning or the logic behind what the court actually decided. So you really have to make sure that 
you know that it can go either way, even if you think it's likely that it's going to go um, in the favor, for example, of your of your client, that they know that there are uh, there is a possibility that that might not happen. And that's why usually when you're coming up with a conclusion, it's probability based. Exactly. Um, so now I want to focus a little bit on um, speaking. And I guess specifically with public speaking. The reason why is because obviously Sarah and I are in our, in our, we're in our first year. So there's not a lot perhaps that we can give in terms of um, professional speaking, let's say, right? Although the two of us are going to be participating in our first moot. So be, be ready for that episode when it comes out. But let's talk a little bit about cold calling. Because I would say that for current law students, um, especially folks in their first year, this is perhaps one of the biggest differences or singular kinds of public speaking uh, that they'll have to deal with in law school. So Sarah, have you had any experiences with cold calling? Yes, um, and actually only during this term. So the second term, in first term, it was really volunteer-based. If you felt comfortable speaking, then you could. We did have some, like part of our grade that was based on participation. So there was that incentive to speak, but technically there wasn't any obligation. The professor isn't going to randomly ask you to answer a question based on what they've been uh, teaching during that lecture. This semester, however, um, I have two classes that really heavily rely on cold calling. One is criminal law and one is tort law. And they do the cold calling in entirely different ways. So in criminal law, you don't know who's going to be called upon. The professor can call upon anyone. He basically uses the class list. It kind of goes somewhat in alphabetical order, but not quite. So, so it's a bit hard to kind of guess when you might be called upon. So I would say in those cases, it's much easier to volunteer. I did it at the beginning, for example, so I don't really have to worry about being called upon because he's been calling upon people that he hasn't heard from throughout the, the term. And I don't have to worry about being unprepared either. And that's what's nice with volunteering is that you can really make sure that you're selecting a question that you're very confident in uh, when it comes to your answer. And so you don't have to worry about, oh, how are my classmates going to view me and different things like that. And unfortunately, those are kind of anxieties that come up when it comes to cold calling. And I feel like it's a way that you can bypass those relatively easily. In tort law, the way my professor does it is she has a panel of students is what she calls it. And so at the end of each class, she names the students who are going to be a part of next class's panel. And those are basically the main students that are going to be answering any questions throughout the lecture. So other students can volunteer if they want to. But as you can probably guess, most of the time, no one will be volunteering. So it's really going to be those students answering. What's nice is that because you know in advance, you can prepare, take extra detailed notes about the cases. And luckily, the questions that she asks kind of follow a pattern. So it was probably harder for the people that were the first panel. Um, but after that, she pretty much asks the same kinds of questions to every single panel about different cases, of course. And um, basically, 
this way of cold calling makes you have to answer questions more in depth. So she really asks about your opinions. She wants you to engage in different philosophical debates where there isn't really a right or wrong answer. Um, so that might be a bit more difficult because you have to kind of engage in more complex legal thought. But at the same time, you are also coming prepared. So I feel like it, it evens it out. So Sarah and I are in the same criminal law class. So I also have one class this semester that does cold calling. I think that the professor does it in a very respectful manner. I think that, you know, the, I think the whole point of this Socratic cold calling is this idea that you will get to have experience one-on-one -on -one to engage with the professor for a prolonged period of time to discuss some kind of complex legal issue, right? So I think one of the most important things to consider when when you're kind of thinking about why you're nervous about cold calling is to accept the idea that your professor doesn't hate you, they're not trying to scare you, they're not trying to one-up you or embarrass you in front of the class. They don't know who you are. They don't know who you are, right? And they will always know more than you about the subject, especially if you're in your first year, right? That's that's a hundred percent going to be the case. Also, your peers might know more than you do, or they might not. Chances are, because you guys are all in the same place, more or less, you're on equal footing. But also, if if they do happen to know more, who cares, right? What's what's really interesting is that. This can just be an opportunity for you to be very exploratory and experimental with how you want to approach thinking about a legal issue. I agree with Sarah that I think volunteering yourself usually uh, allows you to just get it over with, right? That's one perspective. For me, I also think that sometimes the best defense is offense in that if you're nervous about something, the best thing to do is to just try it out because the moment you've psyched yourself up to it at least in my experience I haven't been as nervous or as scared as if I just kind of sat to the sideline and worked myself up right I also think that what else is there I mean my this has been my only experience with cold calling and I have never found it to be a particularly nerve-wracking issue um, what I will say is that if someone next to you is getting cold called and you can tell that they're having a difficult time, I have seen instances where people who are sitting next to them will try to help them out. I think that's a good thing to do. I think in general, it's, it's just that your peers are really not out to remember, uh, your shortcomings, right? I think they're thinking about these issues with as much difficulty as you probably are as well. You know, you're all in the same boat. I think that's a good way to approach it. No, definitely. And if anything, they're probably thinking about when they're going to have to speak and actually say something in class and they're not going to remember. I, I don't remember, for the most part, anyone's participation in the classes, even whether it was really, really good or really bad. There's nothing that kind of stood out to me, and I feel like it's probably going to be the same thing for everyone else because you're focused on other things at the same time. You're focused on taking notes. You're focused on what the professor is actually going to say about the person's intervention, right? Are they going to agree with it, disagree with it? And it doesn't really matter. 
So don't worry if a professor disagrees with what you said. That's fine. It's not going to impact how they view you or your grade in the course or anything like that. And your peers are probably just going to focus on what they say, what the professor is saying afterwards to take notes. So all in all, I feel like you're probably going to feel like if everyone's eyes are on you and everyone's going to remember, but that's not actually the case. It's it's a bias, unfortunately, and I know it's impossible to completely eliminate that anxiety, um, but take it from Meg and I, I think that, you know, if I don't remember what anyone else said, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that probably most people didn't. And now in terms of resources, uh, simply because whenever we do these kinds of ep episodes where we explore some kind of um, issue or like tips and tricks, we always like to provide you with resources that aren't just our lived experience. <laughs> and so if you're struggling with any kind of public speaking or specialized speaking or writing, just know that these issues are some of the most popular fears, right? So you are definitely not alone if this is something that creeps you out or makes your heartbeat elevate or anything like that. Um, in terms of practical next steps, if you, if you are thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to become an amazing public speaker or legal writer in the next, you know, couple months or something. But I, I would like to actually start doing something where I can see myself improve. The University of Toronto, for instance, um, seems to provide a lot of opportunities for public speaking coaches, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or evenings or Zoom sessions that you can attend. So I would suggest checking your law school, seeing uh, whether or not those opportunities are afforded to students. More or less, I think they, they will be, especially they'll have like alum uh, that come back. And, and if they do a particularly good job in their field with speaking or writing, they'll usually offer um, tips and tricks as well. I know that Toastmasters is also a uh, larger uh, kind of neutral organization that if you're interested in, they have some uh, student discounts, for instance, if you're interested in taking part in that. And if you're not interested in anything uh, too concrete or too prolonged, what you can always do is try to approach it like daily stretching or daily exercise where you just try to have a conversation with someone, maybe even someone new every day. Try to practice your writing every day, whether that's for five or ten minutes or writing about one specific issue or trying your hand at like one specific hypothetical a week. These things aren't going to suddenly improve. Right. And, and I can say as someone who spent, you know, almost 10 years with one specific kind of writing, it did not mean that I would become very, very good at this kind of writing and speaking overnight. Right. So you really do have to just work at it like it is a muscle that you have never worked out before. It will be very painful at first, but eventually things will become easier. Definitely. And to build on what Meg said, um, our career development office, at least at the University of Toronto, they offer a lot of these kind of workshops and stuff like that to build on different legal skills. Writing is one of them, of course. Speaking is one of them. And, and they um, 
offer a wide range of different activities and different professionals that you can speak to. So similarly to the alum, I think that that's something else that can be really, really helpful. And I think it's pretty consistently offered in all law schools. Maybe the number of workshops will vary and different things like that, but I think it's a good way to go about it and you can speak to professionals who've gone through the exact same thing that you're going through because I can say that for the most part it's not something that comes naturally or easily to anyone just because it's not just speaking it's not just writing it's a specific way of doing so and like we were saying at the beginning of our podcast law school is really like learning an entirely new language and basically a different way of life. And so even if you're a naturally, you know, good speaker, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be naturally good at legal speaking, right? So just to keep that in mind. And so it's going to be a learning curve and a process for everyone. And really practice makes perfect. Um, If you're having a hard time at the beginning, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be amazing at it later on and that you're not going to be, let's say, the top litigator in uh, your law school. Absolutely. And Sarah, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about um, mooting as well in terms of approachable, uh, practical, hands-on strategy to improve speaking and writing. No, exactly. I think mooting is great, especially in first year, at least for us. There's a lot of opportunities for mooting, some that are competitive, but some that are not, that are really more low stakes, don't require any training. They're lottery-based. There's no auditions, no preparation. And I think that's a really good thing to get involved in because that way it's a lot less stressful. Um, There's a lot less anxiety associated with it because there's not like a big prize at the end of it or you're not meeting weekly with coaches who potentially, um, you know, are looking forward to you doing well and then you feel like you're going to be disappointing them or anything like that. There's a lot of these moods that it's a bit, more for fun and kind of to test it out and so that's definitely something that i would recommend for someone who is potentially interested in in litigation and not even like i for example know i want to do transactional work and i'm doing it honestly just for the fun of it i think it's a good way to kind of immerse yourself in in the law school experience uh so that's definitely something that i would recommend that i think Um, is going to be very helpful in building not only your confidence in in public speaking, but also give you an idea of the moot environment. And at least for us in our curriculum, we do have a mandatory mooting credit or credits. Um, It doesn't have to be competitive. There's different ways that you can fulfill the credits. Um, But at least having a bit of that preliminary experience, I think, is going to be very helpful in the long run. And like I said, um, in the middle of this episode, you know, we're actually going to be participating in one of these moots. So, you know, listeners, if you're eager to kind of learn more about it and specifically how we dealt with it, you know, I don't think either of us have um, much mooting experience. We will have an episode later on this season that will go over specifically our experiences with mooting in law school. Exactly. We'll be going starting from scratch. I have no experience whatsoever in mooting or anything similar. No mock trial, no nothing. So it's really going to be hopefully helpful for 
other students who are interested but are like, oh, you know, I don't have any experience. How is that going to go for me? Um, we'll let you know how we navigated it. And I think Meg and I were taking it really as just an experience and something fun that we can do. And, you know, if we wind up winning or something like that, great. But I don't think it's anything that we expect. And we're really doing it for just the practice, honestly. Sarah, that was such a, like, professional athlete interview response. <laughs> it was really good. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And with that, let's let's end the episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. Next week, it'll be just the two of us again, and we're actually going to be bringing you our first episode in an ongoing mini-series called Pillow Talk, where we chat candidly about some of the more sensitive topics of working in law. This upcoming Pillow Talk episode, we're going to be chatting about how to balance work talk and confidentiality. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, check out our Instagram at Beyond the Briefcase Podcast to keep in touch as well as up to date with all of our um, upcoming episodes. Thank you so much, Adam, our technical producer. And of course, thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye.